Welcome back to the table. I'm Renee De Silva, CEO of the Health Management Academy and your host. This week, I'm excited to welcome Dr. David Feinberg, the chairman of Oracle Health to the table. It's been a year since the Oracle Cerner transaction closed and it was great to unpack David's reflections on that milestone and what to expect from Oracle Health in the years to come. David is a pediatric psychiatrist by training and I enjoyed how he brought the physician blends to so many of the industry's pressing technology, challenges and opportunities. Here are my takeaways from the conversation. First, David has led a remarkable career at several high profile roles and organizations. UCLA, Geisinger, Google, and now Oracle Health. The single theme that spans his work is a firm belief that healthcare is fundamentally about caring for people. I think it applies to individuals as much as it does to leaders working at scale. And it was a wonderful reminder of why so many of us have chosen to work in this industry. Next, we covered a lot of ground on Oracle's vision and priorities in healthcare. What I appreciated the most is Oracle's global perspective from serving a diverse array of clients worldwide. David takes us through how tech and data is leveraged differently outside of the United States. Next, we covered a lot of ground on Oracle's vision and priorities in healthcare. What I appreciated the most is Oracle's global perspective from serving a diverse array of clients worldwide. David takes us through how tech and data is leveraged differently outside the U.S., from tracking pediatric weights for community planning in Saudi Arabia to building interoperability with more than 14 million daily records at the UK's National Health Service. And finally, we discuss the pace of AI change and how to ensure it does more than just complicate existing problems. You'll wanna hear all of David's thoughts on this, but my favorite, AI won't replace doctors, but it will replace those who don't use it. So with that, let's head to the table. Good morning, David, welcome to the table. Good morning. So excited to be here. I'm glad to have you. Um, there's so much to cover with you, but before we dive in, I'd love to start a little bit about your the arc of your career. So when I look across your career, you've done a lot within academic medicine, Payvider, and then making a shift to Google and now Oracle Health. Just talk to me about the sort of broad brushstrokes that influence your career forces. So the broad brushstrokes, because in some ways, I don't think I've changed at all is I'm just trying to help people. Um, to me, healthcare is people caring for people. And I want to make care when I was a provider, dividing, providing care to whatever I'm doing now, just more understandable, more accessible, more equitable. I mean, to make it really simple, I want everyone to get the same care that my family should be able to get. And so in some ways, it's just been different opportunities to try to do that. And the fun part has been doing it at scale. But when it gets down to it, I just want to make sure people get cared for. And when you think about the, you know, 30 plus years of, of, of your career experience in healthcare, do you think we're beginning to move the needle on that aspiration? What's your oh, view? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say in so many ways, yes. And then in these other ways, it's just killing me. And I would say no. So, um, you know, care more under understandable. Like it used to be the doctor knew everything and people didn't have access to information. And I think Google in particular really leveled the playing field. And you could say in the early days of Google search, it might've led people down the wrong path. But when I was at Google, so the more recent times, like there were 50 billion, 50 billion impressions 
of our COVID information page on YouTube. And probably now it's 80 billion since I've left, right? So we've leveled the field on ability to get information. Amazing. Like that, that's amazing. In that same 30 year time, we digitized a record. Like no one during COVID got, no one during COVID in the United States heard, oh, we can't find this patient's chart because Dr. Smith took it home over the weekend or, you know, this, I can't read this prescription. So yes, we digitized the record. We've made information flow. And then we've done some stuff that is just terrible. Like I think we've made health inequities worse. I think mental health continues to be kind of carved out and forgot, forgotten how important it is. And these are things we knew 30 years ago. So yeah, those things, I don't think we've made a lot of progress on. I, I even say in some ways we've taken steps back. And when you, um, when you think about the mission that all of us who are in healthcare are striving for, right? Making, making healthcare that is more cost efficient, higher quality, greater access, that sort of triple aim. Do you, do you think those three goals and imperatives are compatible? And and, yeah. Yeah. So I used to say like, you can't squeeze a balloon three ways. Like, so when you think of kind of quality cost and um, access, it's, there's not a lot of examples in the world where everyone gets all three. And I always, I used to think of the only thing I thought that you get high quality, it's everybody gets it and it doesn't cost a lot is the fire department. Like everyone gets the fire department to show up. They're always great folks and they do a great job. Like, and other than that, I couldn't think of something like with healthcare, like if you do high quality and a low cost, then there may not be access. Or if there's, you know, access and quality there, it may be costly. And so I thought, God, why can't we just be like the fire department? And then actually the fires in California blew me away. There's there's now private fire departments. So you're living in some fancy house in Malibu and the guy next door has a private fire department. Oh, gosh. So even that, I was even like, that, oh my God, yeah. that was my one example. And now it doesn't even exist. So no, I think oftentimes this dream of high quality, low cost, accessible. I mean, we don't even have examples of that for water in the United States. Like people don't get clean water. So I, I, it's a big, it's a big ask for healthcare to be able to hit all those three. Although all of us would want it, it's still, it's still pretty tricky. Yeah. Well, the mission continues. You know, I wonder. I wonder your your clinical training was in psychiatry, right? So you you come at this also from a from a clinician view. It sounds like that still very much permeates how to sort of how you see the world and the different roles that you've taken to try to really continue to push on this. Is that right? Yeah. So my training was in psychiatry. I did most of my practice in child psychiatry, and I did most of my practice in child psychiatry and addiction psychiatry. And mm. when you think about that kind of framework to the world. I'm talking about families came to me at their worst time and it required a lot of coordination. It was actually part of medicine that isn't well studied. And you tried to get these folks back on the right trajectory, whether it was a child with autism or somebody with a new onset psychosis or a kid who just got busted for doing drugs at school. Like, and it's just these moments in people's lives where their trajectory the potential trajectory of their lives and their families has changed dramatically. They show up, that's assuming they could get in because access was always, is always still difficult for mental health. And then 
Did we explain things in a way that made sense to them? And then the rest of the world still had all this stigma about it. I used to say, if your kid has cancer and you go to the supermarket and your kid has no hair because of the chemo treatment, people bring food to your house yeah. and yeah. feel bad for you. If your kid has autism, people go to a different aisle in the supermarket, right? And yet it's still a disorder, right? And so those things, yeah, have definitely framed my perspective of what's going on. Yeah, that other, I mean, one of the questions where we started was where have we seen progress across the last 30 years? I, I would say, I don't know if you would note this too, certainly still challenges around access around mental health, but I, I know that the stigma is is maybe changing in certain places where there's at least more of an openness from uh, employers and even benefits design to try to recognize that sort of whole person approach. And I, I think that's beginning to shift. Would you agree with that statement? I would, I would totally agree, Renee, that it's yeah. beginning. I think the way to get it to totally shift, though, is really this move toward value-based care. Because if, if, if a person is suffering from panic disorder and they keep showing up in the ER and having cardiac workups, there's no incentive in a fee-for-service system to really figure that out. Now, let's move to a value-based system where... We want to get good outcomes and we want to keep costs down. Now that chest palpitation in the ER all of a sudden becomes, wow, if we can get this person in evidence-based treatment for cognitive therapy, not only do we treat their panic disorder, which is great, but we're going to decrease that expensive cardiac workup that we keep doing. Now all of a sudden people have to start paying attention because the the if you follow the money, all of a sudden it becomes important. It's not important in a fee-for-service system to worry from a financial standpoint about that panic patient. It obviously is from a human standpoint, but in a value-based system, it all of a sudden becomes incredibly important. That's right, that's right. Well, then let's let's then go to maybe some of the current work that you're up to. I feel like every time um, you make a career shift, it, it gets a, a fair amount of attention. So um, I think it was probably now, what, about 18 months ago, you left Google to pursue um, the opportunity at Cerner, which was then acquired by Oracle. Um, and so now you are, I think, approaching the one-year anniversary of um, Oracle Health. What's your reflection as you hit the milestone? What did, what did you set out to do, and, and how are you feeling about that 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 sort of vision? You know... This was a lot of what you just described, I wasn't aware was going to happen, yeah. right? So <laughs> it, it's been it's been a roller coaster. I, um, um, when I was at Google, it first of all, I've never been surrounded by so many smart people. And I was nervous. This was my first for-profit, right? I had worked at UCLA for 25 years in Geisinger, not-for-profit healthcare. And I was nervous even talked about it before I went in. It was part of my decision-making. Like, am I going to have to sacrifice my values as a doc? Like, I, I don't want to sell ads to patients. Yeah. What I found at Google was more mission-driven people than I had ever met in my career, more so than the not-for-profits. Really? Like these, yeah, these that's people, counterintuitive. That's interesting. It totally is counterintuitive. These people, now maybe, this. remember, this is Google a couple of years ago. Maybe it's different now with the current situation and tech and how it's doing financially but these people want to do the right thing and and man are they serious about it and they're super smart so it was an incredible opportunity to be there 
to learn about that culture and to see the scale, like 2 million searches a day on health questions. Like talk about trying to get people information, like this is where healthcare starts. So it was incredible. But for me, in some ways, I felt like I was a vendor to the vendors. And I miss the nursing station and walking through the ER. So coming back to Cerner was an opportunity to me to be able to kind of walk the halls again and be on the closer to the front line of healthcare because Cerner is the largest EHR company in the world. So from a market share standpoint, we have bigger install base than anyone. Um, and, and I said this pre-Cerner and at Cerner, that doesn't mean we got a great product. Like I think these EHRs, ours included, have never been built for the user. So that's job number one to fix it. But being the largest EHR company in the world, to me means we have more of grandma's blood sugar than anyone else. Like Mm. what an opportunity to keep it secure, to understand it, to get that blood sugar to the right place, to be able to understand whether grandma needs food in her house. I mean, what a privilege to be that last mile of understanding what's happening in healthcare. So that was my coming to Cerner. And after about 90 days there, you're supposed to come down with some brilliant strategy. And yeah. mine was, we got to fix the EHR. We got to just make this thing usable. And that's all we need to focus on. Like we got to get less clicks. It's got to be more intuitive. It needs to have a modern tech stack. We can't have docs spending two hours in the evenings when they get home completing their records. It's not only not fair, it's just not the right thing to do. So that was the journey. Oracle knocks on the door. And to be very frank, I felt like, oh my God, here we go again. Tech, thinking those of us in healthcare don't really know what they're doing. And if we just use this app and everything would get better. And so the Oracle integration starts. And there were a couple decisions in the beginning that I felt like, oh, I was right. Like these guys and girls don't get healthcare. Now a year into it, I was completely wrong. I would describe my Oracle, my new Oracle colleagues as incredibly humble and inquisitive and really appreciating let's say the expertise that the Cerner legacy people have because we've been in healthcare for a long time. And there's also a different, um, a real differentiator from Google. So at Google, it was really clear that they were putting their toe in the water in healthcare. At Oracle, Larry Ellison has been very clear, we are jumping in the water. So he describes Oracle now as a health company Health is the priority for Oracle, and that's a big difference. So instead of trying to come up with a point solution, and I'm happy to talk more about this as we get in the conversation, we're going to try to create a a, a large platform ecosystem that really does change how information is exchanged. Whoever's caring for you, whether it's your mom at home or you or a case manager or a professional um, get them the right data at the right time. So, and I want to go into that. I yeah, love that. So let, let's, let's click on that. So, so maybe bring to life then the Oracle, Oracle health vision for this, um, healthcare 
for life or, or bringing healthcare to life for all of us, what does that okay. mean to build an intelligence-based cloud platform that maybe leverages the EHR as a system of record, but really needing to get that to become a system of engagement, if you will? Um, I'm going to try to do this without too many buzzwords, Okay, all right. <laughs> but there's so many buzzwords, but I'm going to try to, well, it's back to try to explain things in a way people can understand and no mumbo jumbo. So cloud enabled, open and connected platform for health, right? So cloud makes sense from a security and cost standpoint, open and connected to me, our buzzwords are, we are not doing this by ourselves. Okay. This is going to be through partnerships and we want the best of everyone to join. And then what we're really trying to do is connect the different parts of healthcare so you get intelligence. So EHR, and we want to build this in an EHR agnostic way so the other players in the EHR space can join. Um, of course, we've got an EHR, so that's great. And the other pieces that we want on this connected platform are things like human capital management software. So think about a nurse who's never given chemo and is doing it in the EHR, we know, for the first time. Well, the human capital management system should know that that nurse is giving this type of chemo, particularly for the first time, and we do just-in-time training in the EHR. Where the EHR knows what's happening in the OR because you're documenting it. Mm -hmm. We did this surgery, we use these supplies, and that drives your supply chain software and ERP, so enterprise resource planning, claims processing, clinical trial information. All of these components are pulled together in a way that's easy, pre-integrated, um, intelligent. And then a key piece in all of this is it has to be way, way, way less expensive because as I've had this opportunity to meet with health systems in the US and around the world, there's a few things that are consistent. The labor issue is killing people and the cost issue are killing yeah. people. So can we do this in a way where we say, and I would say this is the first time that tech could say this, here's a tech solution that's gonna dramatically decrease your costs. Um, so it's gotta be intelligent, it's gotta be easy to use, it's gotta be connected with others, and it creates this end-to-end -end platform that allows those data, disparate data sets to make sense and to be built into people's workflow or light flow, depending on who we're talking about. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. Um, and it's gonna take a while and it's gonna take a lot of partners. Yes, and so that that example that you gave of the nurse giving chemo for the first time and, and connecting all the dots for, for her or for him, I, I, I get that. Can you maybe then speak to, is there, what's the version of open and connected from the lens of the patient? If that, if yeah. that is even relevant for this, for your vision. Yeah. So um, Oracle has a vertical business unit called Oracle Financial Services. That business unit is divided into two things. One is credit card processing and they process I don't know, 60 to 80% of the world's credit cards run on Oracle. The other half of that Oracle financial services is medical claims processing for the payers. Hundreds of millions of medical claims are processed by Oracle. So we have clinical information. 
we have expertise in being that middle person between the bank and the merchant when we do the credit card processing, and we have claims processing. So from a patient standpoint, imagine that you go in to see your provider, you use a portal, you you know make your appointment online, all the stuff is filled out in advance. When you show up at the health system, we know who you are. You see your provider, you walk out, and there's automatic claims adjudication. Well, what does that mean from a patient standpoint? That means as you're leaving the office, it says your out-of-pocket is $14. Would you like us to use your HSA that's already loaded and on your phone? You say yes. Got it. You don't get an EOB at home. You don't get one of those things that no one understands. Right, exactly. You know in advance what's happening. And really, when you think about it, not only do you now understand that, that little scenario that I gave should have a dramatic decrease in the overall cost of healthcare. And the patient, instead of maybe $14, if we play this out, only owes four. Because think about it. When that health system signs a contract with that payer, they agree on the rates. And then they each go and load it in their own systems. And then the provider bills, and there's a bunch of people coding, and there's a bunch of people on the payer side who are making sure this is authorized and covered. And there's all kinds of friction. Probably 4% of healthcare costs on each side are spent, of, I would call them these armies fighting each other. Exactly. Well, if we can be that trusted intermediary, 99% of this stuff could be auto-adjudicated. Everybody's cost decreases. Some of that should get passed back to the family, patient, employer, whoever's paying for the health insurance. And now not only is it more effective and convenient, it's actually more costly. And none of that cost makes depression better or helps anyone get their appendix taken out. Like this is just noise in our system that we think we can dramatically decrease. That's Yeah, that's powerful. So then maybe um, maybe zoom out, zooming out a bit, I, I spend most of my time thinking about the healthcare, the, the United States healthcare system. You, particularly in this new newer role, um, have a global perspective. So we were to zoom out even further, as you think about the diverse nature of your clients and just some of the issues that are animating outside of the U.S. healthcare market, what learnings are you drawing from other countries? Are there any exemplars there that you think we should be, that should be more directly informing our mission here to be more cost-effective, higher quality with greater access, anything that you'd bring to life there? Yes, yes, and yes. So, so uh, I'm actually so excited about what's going outside the U.S. I think ultimately we create a whole system that's so much more patient, family-centered, and then it leapfrogs what we have in the U.S., and that's how we bring it back, as opposed to trying to fix the U.S. system. You can get pretty frustrated in our in our current U.S. system. But let me give you some examples. Um, in Sweden, and we had to fix this in our EHR, the, uh, the doctors can prescribe opera. Amazing. In Saudi Arabia, they use our EHR data to look at pediatric weights. And if there's too much obesity in a certain area, they can't get approval to open a fast food, but they do get approval to open a gymnasium or community. Wow. So talking about going upstream, you know, talk about using the data in the right way. Like, wow, it's totally right. Um, in Sweden, and we're not going to be able to pull this one off, but I just love it. Um, 
the baby's medical record stays under the mom's record until the baby is one year old. So think about in the US, a baby's born, we create a new record and all that kind of stuff. I love that the dyad can, obviously the baby's under the mom when the mom's pregnant, but there they keep it together for a year. And when you think about it with breastfeeding and bonding, it is really a dyad. So Mm -hmm. you see things outside the, well, in London, we have 14 million records a day going across our health information exchange. The UK is a big Cerner or Oracle Health customer with the NHS. So the interoperability, um, there's a, a place in the UK that found using our data that the chances of being hospitalized for COVID pneumonia was higher among the learning disabled population than it was for people with COPD, bronchitis, or emphysema. Hmm. So actually having a learning disability was a higher risk for pneumonia, COVID hospitalization, than respiratory chronic illness. Fascinating. What turns out was they weren't doing the vaccines and they'd have the clinic set up for the learning disabled population. They do it and you see a dramatic decrease in hospitalization. So this kind of population health stuff, value-based stuff, it's how the rest of the world does it. and you just see these amazing examples of that of that app. Yeah, that's really powerful. So then I guess um, you know maybe staying on the 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 insights lens that you just pushed on. I think those examples are fantastic. How do you then think about that in terms of just the pace at which AI and other large language processing models are then sort of shifting how this is ingested and distributed. It, the, the, the pace of that is pretty mind boggling. Just layer that in to how you're sort of seeing all these forces coming together. Yeah, that's the hot question right now, right? And so here, I'll give you my stock answer, but then since we have a couple minutes, I'll tell you, I'll give you the background. So what I say is, look, AI is not going to replace doctors. Doctors that don't embrace AI will be replaced. Like this is a really, really powerful tool. It's mind-blowing. It's so good. It's also, back to our original part of this conversation, it's also one of the things that scares me the most because I think it could actually make health inequity worse. So when I was at Google in the UK on top of Cerner, we created a system that told the rapid response team in the hospital, basically the nurses and docs who get called if a patient isn't doing well that's admitted. Um, We created an app to try to pre- to try to get the time of diagnosis and treatment for acute kidney injury among these patients um, decreased. And so it was normally taking them four hours to figure it out on a patient. We created an app that just looked at creatinine, just a measure of kidney function, one blood test, and created good UX. So they got notified on their phone. And it went from four hours to 14 minutes. And there were 30% less cardiac arrest and a 17% decrease in the cost of care. Back to the point of, you gotta build the tools to work for the people who are using it, but that's not AI. And then we said, okay, let's do AI. So instead of looking at just creatinine, one measure per patient, we looked at um, 600,000 variables times 70,000 patients. So every patient had 600,000 variables and we looked at 70,000 patients and we train the computer on being able to predict who would go into acute kidney injury. And so instead of taking four hours and we got it down to 14 minutes with good UX, how fast the computer could figure that out? 
Well, the computer figured it out in negative two days. So 48 hours before any sign mm. or symptom, no change in blood values, no change in clinical situation, with 90% accuracy, AI would say this person is going to be on dialysis. And they were right. Like, blows your mind. Like, yeah. this is the beginning of like anticipatory medicine. They're like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. So that's great. Now we trained it on 70,000 patients, 600,000 variables per patient on a VA data set. We did this research with the VA. So that's incredible. But then you go, well, how will it work in the general population being that the VA is 93% male? Well, it turns out the general population, which is closer to 50, 50% male, female, it doesn't work as well. So here's an example of AI that's being, that's amazing. And then you have to be really careful when you use it because in women, it actually wasn't as good of a predictor. And so we have to come up with these AI tools, be really, really explicit on what data sets they were trained on. Many of them are biased to start with. I would say in essence, the VA is biased because it's heavily male. And so then if you're gonna use it, it almost has to come with like a food label, like don't use it in this situation, but be super careful in this situation, or it probably will work really well in this situation. But that human computer interface for that doctor embracing the AI and understanding how to use it is going to be really, really important for us not to kind of look back and go, oh my God, we made problems worse. Um, the other thing is you can have the best AI in the world. If you make people go to a different workflow who, who can't get through their current day, no one's going to go use it. So it's back to, we got to make the EHR and these tools useful. And then we can quote unquote, sneak the AI in because we've already made their day easier, but that AI has to come in with a clear message of be careful in this situation or you're okay in this situation. Yeah. A lot to unpack there in terms of just governance and, and um, ethical applications of it and how to square all of that. And then I think your point around, you know, we've been one topic that we've been exploring with our, our CEOs in particular is around where is this, if you believe in this sort of human AI dyad models of care, I think you're exactly right. Like the workflow has to be there. You need to have ways in which it's integrated. It 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 might help augment tasks, but unlikely to replace sort of full functions. But I feel like we are in the very early innings of squaring that. Um, so I just appreciate your your sentiment there. Yeah, I just want us to not make problems we know in healthcare worse. Like, let's at least try to make stuff better. And I'm just nervous about the bias in the data and then being so excited about these tools. So really, the probably the best place to use them to start with is not really around clinical decision support, but some kind of menial task stuff that could be helpful, sending a letter to the insurance company, um, uh, you know, doing a pretty straightforward, simple progress note, telling yeah. a radiologist, hey, maybe you should read the scans in this order because we think these four are probably your, you know, most significant scans of the hundred you've got to read today. I think that's right. All right. One other pivot I want to make before I wrap us up, which is um, as you more of a general broader leadership question for you. So I'm curious for your reflections as your career has progressed, you've recently moved into from a CEO role to a chairman role. Where do you feel like, how has your time shifted how do you feel like, I mean, was that a challenge for you? I mean, typically, you know, CEOs sort of people who have been CEOs for a, a long time, you know, they activate in a certain way. So just what is that migration from CEO to chairman 
felt like for you? Um, they're really different roles. Yes, they so, are. If done yeah. right, if done well, they are very different yeah. roles. Yes. And I've tried to be very um, intentional in not acting CEO-ish in this new role. So I'm trying to spend much more time on kind of broader strategic issues. Oracle had done a lot in healthcare pre-Cerner. So I've been spending more time trying to pull those things in, clinical trials, claims processing, that Oracle had already done and strategically think about how it can connect with um, kind of the core business of the EHR. Um, it's definitely given me more time for reflection and to kind of think more broadly where in those CEO roles, um, it's you, you're, you're running pretty hard. Now I've had this transition now twice. So at, at, I wasn't the CEO of Google, I was running Google Health. Um, so a division head, let's say, as opposed to a CEO, you know, there's all kinds of perks with the CEO roles that you that all of a sudden disappear when you're not that person. Those things don't mean much to me. So whatever, I'm, I'm fine with those. Um, in this current one, I'm really, I'm really pleased with the ability with, my, I, I got more time to think. Yeah. Um, and I think Oracle has made all the right moves about kind of how to operate the business. And it's been a really fascinating watch of blending what I would call Cerner legacy leadership with historical Oracle people who are now have, you know, really significant roles in health. Um, I'd give our integration like an A. It's gone great. And a big piece of it has been Larry Ellison saying, hey, look, we're going to do healthcare," And that, that has really made it really clear for the organization what we're doing. And I've, I'm just blessed to be able to have a seat at the table. That's fantastic. I think your reflection is right. You know, the importance of, and not that I've been in a chairman role, but just this, it, just this notion of where is the inflection when you're not as accountable for day-to-day -day operations, I would imagine that that might be a lot of fun just to sort of dwell in the art of the possible. And so funny, Renee, people ask me, how do I like the job? I said, it's the most fun job I've yeah. ever had. So I something about, you know, I, yeah, yes, it is a lot. Of fun. That's great. That's great. All right. Final question. It's one that I ask all of my uh, podcast guests, which is, we've, we've covered a lot today. Um, but if you could invite any two people to continue this conversation um, at a table that you curated yourself, who would they be and why? So they don't have to be living. Is they do not way? take all the creative license that you might want to. So a couple of my heroes, one is Rosalind Franklin around DNA discovery. Um, it's amazing. First of all, I think a woman that long ago who was brilliant from a scientific standpoint must have gone through so much. So I would love to know what she thinks from a science standpoint. And also, I think healthcare is a woman's game when you think about who provides care, the alpha mom at home who's taking care of everyone else. So I would love to invite Rosalind Franklin. Um, and then the other one, which is really important to me, is around health equity and I think Frederick, Frederick Douglass would be a person mm. that I would be really interested in that 
um, could add the perspective of, hey, what was it like as a black man to try to move the needle? And how can we do, how, help us, teach us how to do that same thing right now? That's pretty powerful. That's a great, I, I was not familiar with the name Rosalind Franklin, so I will have to go back and educate Oh, so, you know, Watson her. and Crick discovered the DNA, but she really, it was her photographs, and she didn't get the Nobel Prize because I don't think they give the Nobel Prize if you had died, and so she died, but she really, it's really Watson, Crick, and Rosalind Franklin are figured out the double helix DNA. Well, that is a perfect place to land. I appreciate your time and, and thank you so much for joining us today. You're so welcome. This was really fun. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for joining me at the table with Renee Da Silva, a podcast brought to you by the Health Management Academy. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, subscribe and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast now. For all of our episodes, including show notes and transcripts, and more information about how you might join me at the table in the future, please head to hmacademy.com slash podcast. I look forward to having you back at my table next time. Talk to you again soon.